Germany at the dawn of the 18th century was not a particularly attractive place in which to live. Between 15 and 30% of the population could be seen begging in the streets. Your wealth was decided when you were born by your social class. Peasants and serfs made up 85% of the people. They lived a hand-to-mouth existence and hunger was very common. The landed gentry, on the other hand, were representing just 3% of the population. But simply because of their class, they were granted immunity from certain types of punishment and they paid lower taxes. They often had the power of life and death over the serfs who worked their land. And into this society, riddled with inequality, poverty and death, walked a man who inspired and provoked reforms that changed Europe and much of the world. Ludwig von Zinzendorf was born into a noble family in Dresden. He offered religious asylum to a group of persecuted Christians from Moravia, which is in the present Czech Republic. He allowed them to build a village on the corner of his estate. They called it the village of Hanhut. The village grew. It was known as a haven for religious freedom. Over time, though, schisms set in, disagreement began to grow among the people. So Zinzendorf worked very hard to bring the people back together around the Bible and prayer. In August 1727, the people experienced a powerful religious revival. It started an unprecedented 100-year prayer cycle and an evangelistic movement that continues to this day. Church historians around the world recognize this so-called Moravian Pentecost as a turning point for the European church. But that wasn't the end of their story. Because a few decades later, the Moravian movement inspired an Englishman by the name of William Carey to devote his life to India, to institute a series of reforms there that changed forever the history of the subcontinent. Carey worked tirelessly to end the practice of infanticide, the killing of children. He worked to make illegal the practice of sati, in which a widow would throw herself on the funeral pyre of her dead husband. He and his wife instituted or worked against child marriage by instituting schools for the lower caste. They had up to 8,000 students. They brought printing presses to India. They published books in the local dialects for the first time. One writer said that Carey educated Britain and America to rise up and create a series of self-governing Christian nations in southern and eastern Asia. Now that, my friends, is what I call influence. You can sing about changing the world until your gums bleed. It won't change anything. Songs don't, you can win Grammys for songs about influence and it doesn't really change anything. What changes things is when people take seriously the call of Christ, not just to have revival in the church, but to carry it into the world and bring reform. These Christians and others like them taught us something very important, that revival empowers reform. And I'll say more on that in a moment. In Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, God says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, forgive their sins and heal their land. Over the course of my last few visits to this great church, for those of you that have got long memories and were here at the time, I've been sharing a series of thoughts on what I call taking faith to a pre-faith world. And I want to add something to that today. 
You see, our society, the contrary to what some people tell you, is not post-Christian in Europe. It is actually pre-Christian again. People really know very little about the true narrative of Jesus, and they certainly don't know anything much about his personal power to transform a heart, a life, a relationship, a culture, an institution, a nation. So the question we've been asking is, how do we as Christians bring our faith into a culture that doesn't share our assumptions about very much at all, whether it's morality or ethics or certainly the Bible? We've seen in the sessions we did last time I was here, and if you weren't here, go to the podcast site. I'm sure they're there. We've seen that influence is the church's mandate. It's what we are called for. In Romans chapter 12, we find that cultural transformation is the direct result of us being transformed through the renewing of our thinking. And I want to just share with you one or two more aspects of our thinking that God wants to renew or to change so that we are able in this country now to bring Faith to a pre-faith age. The first of them is this. If we're going to bring faith to a pre-faith Germany, we need a new understanding of revival. The promise we just read in 2 Chronicles 7.14 is actually a response from God to a prayer that King Solomon was offering during the two-week opening of the original temple in Jerusalem. Solomon was asking God that if the people should ever leave their faith and lose their passion for him, that God would not respond to them in the same spirit, that God would actually woo them back, draw them back, attract them back. And this, we've read God's response today. In a sense, Solomon was asking in advance for what some people call revival. There are two important things that this verse says to me. The first is this, when God acts in response to intense prayer, the first people changed are always the one who do the praying. The first thing that happens when we begin to pray for anyone or anything is that we begin to change. The first thing that happens is God says, I forgive your sins. He deals with me first. Do you know the word revival does not appear in the Bible at all? Many of you would be aware of that. And Christians use this word to mean so many things. It's important that for the sake of this session today, I define what I mean by revival. To revive something literally means to bring it back to life. In fact, the English word for revival comes from a Latin term which means to live again. Now, it is self-evident, is it not, that you can't bring back to life what never had life in the first place. So when we're talking about revival, we're not talking about something that happens in Germany. We're talking about something that happens in the church in Germany. In Ephesians 2.1, Paul says, In the past we were all spiritually dead because of our disobedience and sins. We don't come alive, ladies and gentlemen, spiritually until we know Jesus. You might be alive emotionally, you might be alive intellectually, you might be alive socially, uh, physically, but there's a dead part within you. And many times people acknowledge this and are openly honest about it. There's something missing in me. We're not spiritually alive until we surrender our lives to Christ, according to the Bible. Now, strictly speaking then, when we talk about revival, we're talking about something that happens in the church And many historians prefer the word awakening to revival. And I I prefer the word awakening myself. On my 21st birthday, 
which is exactly 40 years ago. I've been a Christian 50 years this year. I just remembered the other day. And no, 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 clap the Lord. He's had to put up with me all that time. <laughs> On my 21st birthday 40 years ago, a neighbor gave me an alarm clock. Now, it wasn't one of the super cool things we have today in app-driven digital phones. It was an old school alarm clock, but it did have some cool features. Its worst feature was the snooze button. <laughs> because I would wait to the alarm and be ready to go out and invest my life in whatever God had for me that day as a young Christian and maybe make a difference, I hoped, to some people and hopefully made God's name greater a little bit that day. But the snooze button allowed me an escape hatch. I could knock the button and just go back to sleep for a little while. Listen, there's no point being given an alarm clock if you're just going to keep hitting the snooze button. There is very little point praying for revival, for an awakening, if you're just going to go back to sleep when all the excitement dies down and the marketing on the video stops and Hillsong Conference has a different theme next year. That's just hitting the snooze button, ladies and gentlemen. The second thing that this verse tells us is that when God acts in response to prayer, he wants to take things beyond the church. He says, I will forgive your sins, but I'll also heal your land. Revival isn't intended to be an end in itself. We don't pray for revival because revival, it sounds cool and sexy and everybody's told us that's what we should pray for. We pray for it because it's a means to an end and the end is reform. Revival empowers reform. Revival is an awakening of the church to do what it was already empowered and called to do. It's just God waking us up again and saying, hey, I've already called you and equipped you to do this. What's the one thing we're called for? To reform the world beyond the church. So focusing on revival without reform infers that God is only interested in the church and the fate of the church. And I want to ask you, quite honestly this morning, do you mean to suggest to me that the God who created and rules over and inhabits the whole of this universe, and for all we know it, multiverses besides, the God who is not bound as we are by time and space, that this God is only, only interested in the church? In Psalm 24, 1, the Bible says the whole earth is the Lord's and the fullness of it and everyone who lives in it. John 3, 16 famously says, God so loved the church that he gave his only begotten son. Is that what it says? God so loved the world. God cares about the world. A dear friend of mine, a man by the name of Pastor Ray McCauley, leads a large church in Johannesburg, South Africa, a church that at one point numbered more than 50,000 people. And I have been there and preached there and seen it. It's not hype. He was a personal friend of Mandela, F.W. de Klerk, before that helped to bring those two together in the early stages of the ending of apartheid. A man who has been a friend and very honest advisor to every president since that time. And I asked him in this TV interview, what, what is it like for you to lead a church in a developing nation. And this is what he said, and I'm going to quote him because it's so appropriate. The challenge for me has always been this. If our church closed down, would the community know? Would it care? What difference would it make to the people who live around the church? 
unless you can take the evangelical and spiritual issues along with the moral issues such as racism and poverty and combine them together in a church, you have imbalance and the church becomes irrelevant, a culture unto itself. Unquote. Revival, ladies and gentlemen, is meant only to lead to reform. And focusing on revival without reform means hitting the snooze button, going back to sleep, when we should be getting out of bed and engaging with the real pragmatic, measurable needs of our world. When Jesus taught us to pray, what's the first thing he taught us to ask for? The kingdom of God. Thy kingdom, your kingdom, come. And the relationship between the kingdom and the church is very important in the Bible because they're not the same thing. The family is the fundamental building block of society. You can't say you're working for the good of society if you're destroying in some way the family. In a similar way, the church, especially its local expression like this, is the building block of the kingdom of God. And you cannot say, well, I'm a kingdom Christian, I don't need the church, because that's a contradiction in terms. To build the kingdom, we have to be engaged with, in some level, at, in some way, with a vibrant local expression of the church. But the kingdom and the church are not the same thing. When you go to work tomorrow, investing your life in whatever God has given you to do, you will not take the local church with you, but you will take the kingdom. You will take the power of the kingdom from within you. You will take its values and its teaching and its ethics and you will live those out. And when we speak about the kingdom of God, we're referring to wherever Christ is king or acknowledged as king. And someone asked me some years ago, what is your definition of the kingdom? And I went away and thought about that and wrote a book around it. And it's simply this. This is the core of it. The kingdom of God is wherever the loving rule of Christ is transforming human hearts, human relationships, and then the cultures and institutions to which humans belong. Now, revival focuses on bringing the kingdom into the hearts of Christians or making it more real for them and awakening to its power. But reform takes the kingdom of God in answer to the Lord's prayer and plants it in society, in business, in media, in education, in law, in politics, and so on. Revival is most concerned with placing the kingdom or renewing the power of the kingdom within the church. But reform goes further than that to heal the land. In history, my friends, there have been a great many revivals within church networks the hill songs of their time that now lay dead and forgotten and buried under the sands of time and we don't even know they existed. Why? Because they didn't lead to reform. And I've grown up three generations in a Pentecostal church. That doesn't mean I'm any better than anybody else. I've had a lot of struggles too and God's had to forgive me of a whole heap of stuff. But I want to tell you this. I know one thing. The revival some Christians pray for is never going to come. It's never happened in history and it never happened in the Bible and it won't happen today because what they mean is God turn up and do for me in Germany what I'm supposed to do for you in Germany. Why don't you come and bring everybody into the church and change business and change and make laws more fair and make politicians more aware of leadership skills? Why don't you come and do what I am actually called to do for you? And God won't do it. There are many areas of this great country that need reform today. 
And I think the society we live in generally in the West is looking for Christians who are revived but are hungry to bring reform. In fact, a secular society, a pre-faith society, needs to see evidence of spiritual renewal or revival in the guise of reform. If they don't see practical works, James said, how will they know you have faith? The other thing we need to do to bring faith to a pre-faith age, the second thing this morning is we need a new understanding of human autonomy in an age of machine automation. Now, I chose this because in part it is linked to the first point about revival because technology is desperately an area that needs reform. We're starting to realize today that not all of the effects of modern tech are positive. Now, let me say I'm a social futurist. That's what I do when I'm at the BBC and other media organizations. When I talk to politicians, that's why they invite me. I'm not against tech. I'm an early adopter of tech. But we're starting to see that not all of the effects of modern tech are positive. One of the first intellectuals to understand that was a Christian man, a French sociologist by the name of Jacques Ellul, a professor at the University of Bordeaux, Writing in the middle of last century, he spoke about what he called technique. He didn't use the word technology, he used the word technique. And technique is not the same as technology in his mind. He's not talking about the machines of his time or the gadgets of our time. He's actually talking about the mindset that can come with technology. The mentality that it can bring with it. He observed that from the Industrial Revolution onwards, we started to look at every area of human activity and search for the most efficient ways of performing tasks. So we searched for efficiencies in time, in resources, in energy expended. And then he says we developed machines to help us repeat those tasks in the most efficient way. So efficiency became our primary goal, not only in technology, but in how we live our lives. And by pursuing efficiency, which usually means reducing tasks, making them simpler, we started, he said, to neglect some of the core needs of our humanity. Now, let me give you two very simple examples to illustrate that point. When we navigate a journey in a car today, we do it with a sat-nav or Google Maps or some other similar device. Nothing wrong with that. I use them all the time. Fantastic. But in the old days, eight years ago, <laughs> people used to use a paper thing called a map. And you know, it's cool, a map. You should try it. It doesn't need a battery. Screen doesn't wear out your eyes. But the map does this. Here's the cool feature of maps that isn't true of sat-naps. When you choose a point of destination on a map and you draw a line from where you are now and you say that looks like the quickest route, your eye also takes in other things on either side. If I go a little east of that line, I could have this experience that I've never had before. I've not been to that place. If I go a little west, I could take my children and have a little adventure in this area. We've never been there. They'd love it. Satnavs don't do that because satnavs are programmed for what? Efficiency. Think about the way we use smartphones to mediate conversations today. In the old days, pre-2007, when the first smartphone arrived, 
If you wanted to have a real heartfelt conversation, you'd go to where somebody was. Oh yeah, you could use the telephone, but that wasn't really a, a deep and meaningful. To have a D&M, deep and meaningful, you had to go where the person was. Now that was messy because it meant changing your clothes for the weather. It meant using Berlin public transport, which is probably better than London's public transport. It cost you something to go where somebody was. Much easier just to pick up a phone and do FaceTime or Skype. But when we do that, of course, we're reducing those very subtle signal skills we have, biometric reading of people's faces. We're not even aware we do it, but we do it all the time. Human experience and relationships sometimes suffer when we make efficiency the priority. And today we see the fulfillment of what Professor Alul was warning us about. It may make us more efficient, but sometimes it doesn't make us more human or humane. Do you know that God in the Bible is not primarily interested in making you efficient? Jesus did not say in John 10.10, 10, I came that you might have life and have it more efficiently. God is not always asking you to do things more quickly. Sometimes he says, be still and know that I am God. He's not always asking me to do things at lower cost because he says there is a cost. Take up your cross and follow me. He's not always asking me to do things using less energy. Because he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength. All your energy. Christians are not anti-technology. We see technological innovation as an expression of the God-likeness within human nature and the fulfillment of the very first command God gave humanity, which was in Genesis 1.28, a command, by the way, to influence. Fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over it. That doesn't mean domination, where we rip off the environment. Dominion, in the, in, the, in the Hebrew version that God was first written in anyway, says this. Be a loving steward of the garden God has given you. So technology is just media, you taking the raw materials of God's creation and combining that with our God-given ingenuity and creativity to create something that hopefully helps us be better stewards. Christians are not against technology. But technology needs reform today. It needs reform in what we call data mining. How many are familiar with this term? Well, you all do, you're all involved in it, even if you don't know what it is. Every time you go on social media or run a health app or pay for something with contactless, you are actually part of a data mining process. Huge networks of computers now are able to track, record and analyse all the information coming in from every mobile device and to use that information to pitch products at us. Have you noticed how the amount of advertising you receive grows each year in the social media platforms? Because there's more and more data, and it's pitching more and more individualized messages to you. Now, on a positive note, that helps doctors and medicos to make more accurate diagnoses, because they can track all the data. But it also has a downside, called the invasion of privacy. Most of us don't know who has access to our data. We don't know what Facebook is doing or Google is doing or who else is doing with our data. 
Tech needs reform. It needs reformers. Biochipping. There are companies in Sweden and America now, growing number of them, who are encouraging workers to have a little radio frequency identification tag that's a, a device, a transmitter and receiver as big as a grain of rice inserted into their hand because they say it offers great efficiencies in the workplace. You can open the security doors at work just by waving your hand. You can run office machinery just by waving your hand. You can buy your lunch in the canteen just by waving your hand. But I wonder, ladies and gentlemen, how we will feel when employers stop encouraging people to have these devices inserted and start insisting that we do. And how will we feel when our bodies become hackable and trackable devices? Your phone is hackable and it's trackable, but at least you can leave it at home on the bedside table. At least you can turn it off. You can even take the SIM out of it and break the phone if you so desire. <laughs> it's very hard to do that with a device inserted into your skin. Technology needs reform. And I believe we will face challenges with technology, whether or not the church has revival. It's going to happen because there's so much technology. But revival empowers reform. Reformers can radically change the way people use technology. And it starts with me. I'm using technology as an example of what reform means and how it starts. We need to ask some questions about how we use technology. How can I use this new gadget or this new app or this new software to better honour God? That's my first question. Second question is, how can I use this new app or technology to make me a better steward of my resources, my time, my money? How can I use this technology to help me build or maintain healthy relationships? Do you know? Do you know? There are a growing number of people, according to a recent study around the world, who've used dating apps before they were married, who keep their membership after they're married, and say they do it to find new friends. Now, that may be true for many people, but I suspect there are more than a few who are trying to keep their options open. You know, just in case this doesn't work out, you know? I might need someone else in the line. Listen, if you're married, here's the good news, or your bad news, which, depending on your perspective, your options are now closed. <laughs> you don't have any options anymore. Celebrate that fact. Enjoy that fact. You don't have to impress her guy because she knows what you're really like <laughs> lady you don't have to impress him every day anymore there's no pressure well there is but it doesn't have to be how can I use this technology to add surprise to my witness Every Christian that adds surprise to their witness positions themselves to be heard because the one thing that is blocking our communication with Germany is predictability. They think they know what you're going to say 
on every issue or problem or situation and how you're going to say it and what you're going to do about it. And when you think you can predict somebody, you stop being curious and you stop listening. So please, please, I beg you, do not go. I use social media all the time. Five million tweets every day. One million of them are mine. I believe in it. I use it all the time. But I do not use it to preach to people. Because the people I'm speaking, remember, it's a public conversation. It's not a private. Don't go on there and just quote the Bible at people who don't even share your assumptions about Christianity. God gave you a brain and it wasn't just to stop your head caving in. He said, love the Lord your God with all your mind. I think an ignorant Christian is as dangerous as an arrogant Christian. And it doesn't take much. Just think, the people that, I'm, that are likely to come across this, what will they think of Christianity if I write that? Now, what adjustments do I need to make so that efficiency doesn't swallow my humanity? Why don't we try, here's a suggestion, doing something this week. Inefficiently. It, maybe not using the sat-nav and kind of is discovering something along the way. Doing arithmetic by hand. Oh. Why don't we try deliberately adding one, not just one, just one non-tech experience to our daily life. Take a more picturesque walk to work or to the shops. Take a few minutes in the lunch hour to walk in the park and listen to the birdies because, ladies and gentlemen, the original Twitter is in the trees. <laughs> That's original, so if you use that, make sure, you know. <laughs> Show someone a kindness. In person. I was sitting in a restaurant just a week or so ago with one of the leaders of Hillsong London. And, and I said, watch this. The young guy who came to serve us was his job. And he wasn't enjoying it that day. And I just looked at him and I said, you are doing a wonderful job. Thank you for being so quick to come to the table. We appreciate it. 